You know why I'm so passionate about Music to Code By? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than four bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only three bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. Net Rocks, episode 1378, with guest Mark Miller. Recorded Thursday, November 3rd, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're going to have a good show because Mark Miller is here in the studio, sitting right across the window from me. Hey, Mark. Ah, you're in the booth. Hey, yeah. guys. We'll just uh, we'll get to you in a second. But Richard, how you doing? I'm well, sir. I'm enjoying being in my office. A few more things done, a few more things still not done, but uh, coming up on a year since the flood. Yeah, that's great. We had a great time at Dev Intersection, and I can actually say that because we're recording this on November 3rd. And of course, it's coming out 20 days later, right. but uh, of course, but we did just get back last week and it was a great show. It was awesome. We had a lot of fun. Epic, actually, especially that dinner at Morimoto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, that's a new restaurant in the MGM Grand. It was pretty good. It was amazing. Yeah. Well, let's get started with Better Know a Framework. Roll that music. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? All right, well, this being show 1378, if you go to 1378.pwop.me, you will find Skillflow, skillflow.io. So this is basically a plugin for Slack or a tool for Slack that's a real-time collaboration tool. You can basically just ask a question, and any expert developers on any Slack team can see that question and answer it. And so it's a real-time collaboration tool built into the existing workflow. That's what they say right on the site. And while it's interesting because, wow, it would be great to just ask the universe a question and have the universe, somebody read it, and instead of a bot like Google or Bing, get back to me with something real, I kind of have a problem with it because I think the most efficient use of everyone's time is for you to go to a place like, for developer stuff anyway, to a place like Stack Overflow, where questions are curated and rated, and then the most valuable answer is selected for a particular question. People refer you to existing threads where the question has been answered before. That to John's me key. is, yeah, that to me is the most efficient use of everyone's time. Whereas this is a little bit lazier for the user and also wastes the time of people who uh, need to answer the questions. So, uh, well, yeah, it might be fun to use and everything as the question asker. I think you your your time is better served by going to see uh, on some forum somewhere 
where where uh, if you can get that answer. But I suppose that's just one scenario. I can't really think of another scenario. You, Miller's making noises like he wants to say something. Yeah. So <laughs> so my thoughts on this are if it if it is efficiency rules and wins. So so if you're able to get the answer faster through this, then it is, in fact, a better use of your time. Of yours, but is it the answerers? Well, I yeah. totally agree with you there, is that we're talking about an, an inefficient, there seems to be inefficiency built into the engine. Right. Right, that there are humans going in and kind of re-answering and re-filtering on your behalf, yeah. right, through the answers. And that seems to me to be something that could be replaced by a machine pretty effectively in the not-too-distant future. Right, so essentially a bot. Yes, exactly. But an intelligent one. The other thing, though, that I think you're you're kind of nostalgic for is the additional information that you get by reviewing everything. You come out of it more informed. And I think as a result, you retain it for longer when you go do your own research and you go through that, uh, for example, the Stack Overflow thread. Yeah, I agree. You know, coming at this from an expert's point of view, I learned a long time ago that I don't put energy into things I don't want more of. Hmm. Sure. And so when I get questions like this that I know a little search would probably answer pretty quickly, I just don't answer them right away. Yeah. I don't like being the path of least resistance for other people's laziness. Yeah, yeah I'm with you, Richard. I do the same thing. I should really stop calling Richard for tech support. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now that I think about it. Yeah. All right. Anyway, cool tool. Yeah, it's interesting. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Grab a comment off of show 1027, which, if you're doing the math, goes all the way back to August of 2014. Oh, my God. This guy named Mark Miller, who Never has this epic photo uh, called The Biology of UI. So, just a reminder that two years later, we're still dancing around this same subject area that he's put a lot of energy into. Yeah. But... uh awesome comment from a fellow by the name of Ruslan, who said, thanks for another great show, guys. Having a developer keyboard sounds really awesome. That was one of the topics on the show was we wanted to make a keyboard tuned for what developers need. Mm -hmm. I'm keyboard addicted. I've tried many keyboards over time. I'm now using a Microsoft Sculpt Ergonomic and a Microsoft Comfort 5000. Mm. The keyboards are well built and easy to type on. But do I need to say that all the functional keys on the keyboards are smaller than the other keys? Because they mm. are. Yeah. The design and ergonomics of keyboards are so good, but the people at Microsoft who designed this, they don't use any software that require the heavy usage of function keys. Right. I use the Vim editor inside of Visual Studio. So, of course, he likes to torment himself. Yeah. And it uses the escape key so often that I had to remap the escape key to a key which is more accessible. Hmm. Which is awesome that you did that. That's all really cool. Redesigning yeah. your own keyboard. That's right. The escape key on the 5000 keyboard is even worse. You can't press it unless you move your hand completely from the keyboard. On another note, I started using a Colmac keyboard layout instead of a QWERTY a year ago and never looked back. Now I'm like, what the heck's a Colmac? Right. Have you ever heard of a Colmac? No, and I'm not even going to answer you because, you know, that's something you could Google. Yeah. Well, I did. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's the QWERTY keyboard, which all of us are using. There's the Dvorak keyboard, which nobody's using except those few people who do. And I don't want to talk to them anyway because they're very self-serving. <laughs> the Colmac keyboard is in between the two. Okay. So it's a different keyboard layout that's not that far from QWERTY, but is substantially more efficient. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nice. So I looked it up and I'll it send a link, I'll include the link to the Colmac keyboard. But uh, Russell goes on to say, every now and then I have to use a QWERTY keyboard on other PCs and that drives me crazy. Of yep. course, the drawback of my Colmac keyboard is that nobody can type on my keyboard. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. 
You know, if you really wanted to have fun with this, wrestling, you would get a keyboard that isn't marked, but also laid out with the Colmac keyboard. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> Just saying. Well, you could kind of do that if it was marked with like, you know how on a lot of keyboards they put on the F and the J keys, they put the little bump there. Yeah. If you had yeah, some just tactile. Just so you can get your home row alignment. Just you, yeah, a little yeah. bit of tactile. I think also you want that for the num keys maybe. Um, by the way, if there are any hardware folks out there thinking, hey, you know, I'd like to do a developer keyboard just for developers. Um, for God's sakes, consult with me. I totally want to do this. I want to make a better, better keyboard um, for software developers. So, yeah. So, Russell, and thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. Because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We map the F7 key to delete them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I love it. I'm just trying to play along with your bad mood today, Richard. So, <laughs> Oh, I'm surly. You I'm are in surly. a surly mood. Yeah, I know. I'm surly. Well, anyway, Mark Miller needs no introduction, but for those who don't know who he is, he's a five-year C-sharp MVP alumnus with strong expertise in decoupled design, plug-in architectures, and great user interfaces. Mark is chief architect of the IDE tools division at Developer Express and is the visionary force behind Code Rush. Mark is a top-ranked speaker at conferences around the world and has been writing software for over three decades as of now. Welcome back, Mark. Hey, thanks, buddy. Neighbor. It's good to be here. Yeah? Neighbor. Yep. You live in the town I grew up in? Yes, Very that's cool. essentially true. We're not too far away. The My favorite thing is sometimes Carl Franklin comes into my house. Yeah. And I just, you know, I'm downstairs and he's there right there in the kitchen. And I'm like, Carl Franklin, you're the biggest star. I love you so much. And my kids spend more time at your house than they do their own house, which is, which is actually awesome. Yeah. I, no, it's fun. We yeah. love, we, we, we're, it's like our house is open and come on by. Yeah. Very cool. And their address is, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was just thinking we're one girl shy of a Mondays, but I'm pretty sure I used this on the last show we did together. Yeah. True. Well, let's talk about, this amazing project that you've been working on for how many years? Oh, the course. I've been working on the course for like five years, Mr. Franklin. It's known in the house as the divorce course. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about this the last time you were on, but um, this is your magnum opus. This is your work that you've been pouring. I mean, and it's not just the fact that it's a, a course, a video training course, but all of the research that you've done uh, is exhaustive and meticulous. And I know, cause I've seen it. Yeah, it is. No, I've, 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 I put everything I've got essentially into this course. It contains, um, a huge amount of original, um, I, I was about to say original research, but a lot of research, a, a lot of re a huge amount of research with original conclusions yeah. and that lead to guidelines for good design. And the research is essentially in the area of cognitive science. How do our eyes work? How does our, our senses work? How do our senses work? And how does our brain take that information and essentially present a version of reality to us? How does all of that work? And and then based on how that works, what are the implications? Like, for example, uh, should icons be filled or should they be hollow, yeah. as an example? Should corners be sharp or should they be round? Mm. Right? And 
And so all of the, what's really cool is a lot of the way we work leads to a logical set of rules and guidelines. Yeah. And so the course contains the research. It contains the guidelines. The research is there to help you retain. So, and, and when I say research, it's more along the lines of, uh, of experiments. Science. So the, so the research leads to experiments. We can do the experiments in the course because mm. there's, there's that interactivity to some degree that's, that's happening in the course, at least in terms of time where I say, you know, here's what I'm about to present be aware of what you're thinking and, and feeling while you, while you experience this. Yeah. And then we talk about it after you do it. Your course reminds me of um, a series that I saw on Amazon Prime called Brain Games. Have you yeah. seen this? I've seen, it's funny, when I talk about this, a lot of people have brought that up. Yeah. I just want to point out that five years ago when we started, I'm pretty sure Brain Games yeah. did not exist. That's true. <laughs> That's how long it's taken. But yeah, Brain Games does do a lot of this, but they don't, the part they're missing is the here are the UI guidelines based yeah, on Yeah, exactly. Right? What does that mean for you? I mean, it's neat that you can have these optical illusions or whatever for a TV series, but uh, what does that actually mean for a developer? That's great. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the thing that's interesting about this, I think we may have talked about this before, but the optical illusions, they provide insight into the shortcuts that our brain is taking to present the, a version of the, of the world that's reality to us. Yeah. Right. And these exist all over the place from the blind spot, right? In the, in the back of the eye where the optic nerve comes up and meets all of the cones and rods to get all of that data back. There are no cones or rods at that point. And so mm. we have this blind spot there. But our brain, somewhere between our eye and our brain, uh, we fill that in with whatever's around it. Fascinating. Right? So, so that's an example of a shortcut. There, there are loads of shortcuts that our brain is taking all the time to kind of give us that impression. Even, for example, when we look from one position to another, our brain still sees that image of from when we last look. Yeah. Right? So when we go in front of a mirror and we look back and forth between our eyes, left and right, we see essentially an instantaneous transition. Hmm. But if we were to watch somebody else do this, we see their eyes move, right? We can see their eyes actually move. Yeah. But for us, we don't. But during that time when we're functionally blind, we're essentially seeing, it's like in the, the burglary caper movies, right? Where they go in and they say, we're going to hack in to the, the video camera and we're going to play a loop right, of what they last saw. Right. It's that's right. what's happening, right? We're seeing the old piece of information, even though we're, so we're functionally blind, but we're seeing that old information. And that's all to reassure us that everything is, you know, normal and constant and real. Because that is the experience of reality. Things don't it change is. in an instant but, like But that. the reality yeah. is, you know, is that it's not, that's not the case, right? We all think we're experiencing everything in real time, but we're about 100 milliseconds behind the actual events of the world, hmm. right? When something happens, like a loud noise occurs in about 40 milliseconds, we might hear that, right? And then in uh, uh, about 20, 30 milliseconds later, our visual processing might kick in and say, okay, I see it. And another 10 to 20 milliseconds after that, tactile processing might come in and say, I feel it. And so about 100 milliseconds after the event, our brain combines these sensory pieces that are coming in at different times and says, this is one event that just came in and happened. And we're essentially 100 milliseconds behind, but, but we don't, nobody's telling us that, right? We don't have that sense. We just simply have a sense that we're in the world and we're manipulating it in real time. Okay. There's just a, one example of <laughs> a brain dump from Mark Miller just on one topic. And, you know, you've got tons of these. Uh, and, you know, what I like about this course is you're not afraid to criticize. And I don't mean in a, a this sucks way, but, you know, show critiques of existing pieces of software and what they got wrong. Right. And often software um, that we use is based on 
older software that can't change. And so some things get carried along as baggage and just absolutely can't be changed because they're too fundamental. And I'll give you an example of that. Windows 10. Windows 10 has uh, these new windows that have a drop shadow around them. And that drop shadow is actually part of the window. And you don't notice it. But you do notice it when you go to resize a window and you're in the what you think is the corner, but it's not the corner. Oh, no. The corner is actually outside in the drop shadow a little bit. And it gets me every single time. Yeah. Well, that would be wrong because it violates what your, expect, your expectation is based on the earlier pieces, that, that uh, based on your earlier experience. Um, well, that brings up like a whole bunch of things. One of them is shadows, right? So shadows, when you have floating windows on top of other ones, definitely need to be there. They really, you need to have some sort of distinction between the piece on top and the piece below. Um, th- that's important. I don't think I have Windows 10. I'm, I haven't seen this particular thing. I think I must be like in Windows uh, 8 or something along those lines on my machine. Yeah. Um, so I haven't, I, I haven't experienced it. Um, but the user model, right? What's the user ex- expecting? If you've been expecting up to this point, moving to your mouse to that corner every single time, this is essentially a uh, bad design because it essentially introduces a user error that's expensive. It makes yes. the path to resizing the window longer and it takes more time to do that. And then so and then the third thing that comes up out of this whole discussion is oh yeah, uh not afraid to talk about those things. In fact, talking about those things I felt was important because I wanted to show that good UI was worth the time to fix. And so if I showed examples that were generic, that wouldn't get the the get the point home. But if I show an example that's seen by like 1.2 billion people every year and impacts them of bad design, and then I show here's how we can fix it, it becomes clear to the viewer, oh, you know what? A little bit of effort can save a lot of people a lot of uh, uh, a little bit of a nightmare, yeah. right? Like getting on yeah. the wrong t- train, for example, in the London Underground. Right. As one example. Yeah. Unfortunately, in doing this, though, um, the, the course was first going up to one, one of the training companies, and they came back and said, uh, no. Yeah, and the reason, and we talked about this before, the reason is that you were critical of software uh, that was put out by companies that had, they had an interest in supporting. So. Yeah, I had a, so company A says, uh, no, we can't do it because legal. They, well, first along the way, they said this is one of the best courses we've ever seen, right. and then at the very end, after the whole course was done, they're like, we can't do it because um, because uh, legal You're criticizing legal and sales are both nervous. Yeah, right, right. And then company number two says, hey, we love it, we want to do it, and then they come back. Legal and sales says no. Yeah. So finally, I was able to uh, get a company DevIQ D E V I Q dot com. Uh, uh, to get to to do the course as is because I wanted to keep it as it is. So, yep. uh, yeah, this is the course that nobody wants you to see. <laughs> is the, what, what we can t- say. So, Mark, you were talking earlier about the sort of latency of senses and how the brain composes these things together. I just can't believe that we never really noticed that. How do you make that all work? Well, from the standpoint of, of injecting a machine into the process, right? Because think about it. When you go reach for a glass of water on the table, right, that all feels instantaneous. It's actually not. Let's say you put your hand out there on, or just on the glass, but you're not sure whether you're going to pick it up yet. You just touch near, you're near the glass, right, with your hand. 
At that point, the decision to take action, to pick that up, that happens in your frontal lobes. And that takes about 40 milliseconds to do, to make that decision. Simple decisions take about 40 milliseconds. And at this point, once you've decided to pick it up, that's when the feedback loop starts. Boom, we've made the decision. Then the activity in our motor cortex causes our muscles to move. That takes about 50 milliseconds at that point. Now, once we move, we make some sort of thing. With the glass, what happens is we, we have a sense that we're immediately picking it up. And we get the feedback on that. All that feedback takes about 100 milliseconds, as we mentioned before, to come back to us right from that moment. So the feedback loop in the real world is essentially about 150 milliseconds from the time we give the command to move the muscles to the time we're acquiring feedback on that motion. It's about 150 milliseconds. But between those two, between moving the muscles and when we start acquiring the feedback, if we're going to stick a machine into the process, like a keyboard, something with a keyboard or a mouse, right, that then stretches out that time between our command for moving the muscles and the feedback. Right. And the important question here is, the really important question is, is how much time do we have in that gap right there? How much can we stretch that out, right? And have it still feel instantaneous. Right. And I'm thinking about tablets and, you know, mouse movements, touch movements, like they have to be natural. So how much time have you got? Right. Well, you've got about 140 milliseconds is what you've got, which in, right. in computer times is, is, seems pretty generous now. But in the older days, even as, you know, five years ago, it wasn't feeling so good. I know at least five, five to six years ago, there were still tablets that were incredibly latent. You would hit a button or you'd, you'd, you'd slide it and it would take a while to, for the screen to update. The screen would be behind you by about uh, 90 milliseconds, 80 yeah. milliseconds or something like that. And you'd be like, okay. And, and when I say behind you, it's like what we're expecting, which means that it's, it's over that 140 millisecond in, uh, range in the inside. It's got to be very, very fast. But it, it also means as soon as you know that number, there are certain classes of activity in a program you know you can't take. Like 140 milliseconds means it better be all inside the machine. You can't jump out on the network. Arguably, can't even jump to disk. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you, you, th yes, or you have different responses, right? Yeah, if it's, you have if an it's, immediate response. And a delayed response. Yeah, if it's less than a second. So let's say you're not in that range, but it's less than a second. In general, you don't do anything. And what happens is the user goes from thinking, I am doing this. It's like reality. They go from that if it's less than 140 milliseconds. And if it's, if they go from that to, I am making the computer right. make this happen. It's a difference between right. I'm doing it and the computer's doing it. We talked about this in the context of speech recognition software last yes. time. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And that it usually takes, you know, time to load up a grammar. It takes time to understand and respond. And it's usually delayed. And, and if you're talking to somebody and there's a delay and they're just looking at you with a blank stare, it's completely unnatural and it's a little creepy. So the, the answer with speech is to have, um, a, a, a canned response sort of built in, sort of like a, hmm, or yeah. I'm thinking about that. Or, or the, something or the little you, beep up sounds. A little beep boop, something to acknowledge, yeah. And I yeah. mean, while it's not perfect, at least it gives you an indication that, yes, I heard you. I mean, we do this with people all the right. time. You're saying, yeah, right, immediately. Getting the timing on this message is important, though. If, it's, if your response is going to come back in less than a second, you, you generally don't want to give any feedback that says, I'm about to give you an answer. Right, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, if it's more than a second, less than four and a half, then you want to do that kind of bebop kind of thing, right? Yeah. Or, or if it's visual, you want to have like a spinning work indicator, something like that.
Or, you know, it's infuriating when you're on the phone with a bot and they say, please stand by while I think about that. The answer is, you know, sure. why didn't you do that? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Although the, the time of those words was it's almost his thinking time right there. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was probably more than the thinking time, which is what we're getting at. Yeah. And then the last thing is if you're about over four and a half seconds, then you need some sort of progress bar with a cancel kind of option on her. Yeah. And that's, by the way, when people start thinking something's really wrong. Right. In that one to five second range, they're like, uh, this is sluggish. And after five seconds, this is broken. Yeah, it's essentially that's that's for me. That's where I go to. I go, there, there's something wrong and broken with feedback, giving people c- feedback on it. There's two things that are kind of important. One is you don't want to give feedback too soon. And with software, it's pretty much impossible to do this or there are rare situations where this happens. Um, but if, but you may have seen examples of this where you've watched something where audio has been out of sync with video yeah, and, and one of them's coming before the other, and that's really hard for us to sync up. Um, and so that, that as a result, our cognitive load goes up. Yeah. Um, the other problem you have is if feedback comes too late, which you can get into a pilot induced oscillation error where you're making adjustments back and forth. And this happens not only with planes, but this can happen even with a keyboard. Mm-hmm. This happened in, in my car when I was, it was so slow on, on the navigation system that when I went ahead and hit the number two and part as part of an address, um, I, my, my finger came back and I didn't see the two. So I went to hit it again, and then I see two twos come in. Yeah, right. right? So that's the start of the oscillation, right? And then if I, I, you could see the now I go. Imagine I go to hit the backspace, and I don't see anything. I hit the backspace a second time, and now we've deleted both twos, and we're yep. back the other way. Yeah, right. And so, so, so going to taking too long to get feedback is also problem problematic. Yep. This happens to me on my phone all the time. I don't know about you guys, but we used to call it the uncanny valley when we were talking about phone gap apps. And now native apps are doing this too. And, and I, I don't know what to do about it. I mean, it's just like that. In terms that of delay. Yeah, yeah, the delay between, did I actually press this? Oh, I didn't get immediate feedback, so I'll press it again. The second screen pops up and I've deleted something. Yeah, no, you want to, uh, my, my advice is you abandon the app and you find something that's faster you essentially vote, you know, and, and send a message to everybody that, that speed is important, that efficiency yeah. is important. Yeah. But yes, I, you're, you're totally right. It, it takes you out of the essence of what the app is there to do, mm-hmm. right? You're instead, your mind is obsessed with the user interface, the, the latency and the aspects of the user interface are making it hard to use right. rather than, you know, moving through the data incredibly quickly. We talk about driving a car as the ultimate metaphor for using software in that, in that in the right mode because the car is so tactile and it's so immediate and so physical and responsive yes responsive exactly that that's exactly what we want yeah from software well that's a crazy thing so in in the car that i've got it is it's totally responsive everything about it i love with the exception of the ui in the device in the center it is the latency kills it Hmm. In, in fact, there was a time when I think I ran out of juice for my my uh, phone, and I couldn't use na- navigate with my phone anymore. And I essentially felt like it was all I, I was lost, and there was no w- solution to the problem, even though my car had its own navigation system in it. Right? <laughs> I was just like, okay, I'll just find my way using the street signs around me. Huh. And it wasn't until later that I was like, oh yeah, you know what? I could have solved that problem that way, but I didn't because I have not used it since the first time I tried it because it was, it was so bad. It was so bad. Wow. Yeah. Rather not use a product because the product quality is that low. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to give Mark Miller a new superhero name. 
Cone Blaster Rodman. Wow. <laughs> it's that time. Do we do this every day on every the show? Every day, my friend. Should I just come every show day. up every day for this bit? I love this bit. <laughs> uh, it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Rahul Rawala. Congratulations, Rahul. Yeah. All clap for you, sir. Yep. And Rahul wins the DevExpress D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends over there. And if you don't know what we just did, go to .netrocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. All right, Miller, it's your turn. You got five grand in your pocket. You're going shopping. What are you going to buy? I'm going to get a Surface Studio 2-terabyte yeah. Intel Core i7. Yeah. That's what I'm going to get. That's $4,199. That leaves $801 cold hard cash in my pocket. I'm going to McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of Big Macs. Yeah. I'm going to celebrate my Surface Studio with Big Macs. That's what I'm doing. I think I would take that money and spend it on a proper SSD for that machine because it comes with a hybrid drive. Well, fine then. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> fine, I'll do that. That's what I want to do. Yeah, that looks kind of fun. The only thing I'm like a little bit, um, I'm a little bit, oh, I'm not sure about it. I have to actually get one in front of me, is when it goes in that kind of flat inclined, that's inclined lower profile position. Can we call it the Star Trek console position? Fine. Absolutely. Star Trek console position, exactly. When it gets hits that position, uh, your keyboard is kind of in the way. So, hmm, yeah. so moving back and forth between those two, it's like in the example they have the, the, in the in the picture they they have here, the the keyboard's very small, right? And it's like, yeah, that's not going to work. I'm going to have a lot of strain because you know, as a programmer, I'm I'm typing a lot of code. So, so moving the keyboard away and then bringing it back, that's kind of a tra transitional cost between these two different contexts of uh, of entering information and interacting. However, everything else about it. Looks awesome. Looks like it'd be really, really cool. And of course, the software is going to be what's going to take it over the top. I've got a, uh, you know, I've got the 43 inch 4K display. So it's only 120 DPI. So you can use it without zooming. And it's set in the corner of my desk far enough back that I have room for a screen in front of it in at that angle. My keyboard's actually in a tray under the desk. So I sort of have that space there, which tends to accumulate crap nice. anyway. Nice. That's a good and, idea. And you never want to touch the 4K screen, right? A, yeah. it's beautiful. Don't touch it. Right. And B, it's just too big and too far away. But I keep playing with this, that that sloped screen position for certain maneuvers you want to do with software. And, yep. you, and you have that distance. You say you have that distance between when it's down in that sloped position between your, your the edge of your yes. desk and the monitor. And the reason, one of the reasons is a 43-inch monitor is extremely big and you need to push it back. Right. Yeah. You can't yeah. sit too close to it. Right. 
Yeah, it comes with its own UI challenges, but as far as user interface, um, the dial looks beautiful. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. The one thing, though, the dial does have, you, you're picking it up and moving it, right? So there is a transitional cost every time you want to You don't have engage. to have it on the machine. Right. You can have it on your on your table or your desk. Right, but I'm imagining for some software, you might actually want to put it there, but maybe right. I'm wrong about That's that. That's true. I don't, yeah, I, don't I mean, if you, it like the original Surface, it does pick it up and draws things around it. Yeah. Like, you know, if it's going to be a gauge to turn things up, you might have the, yeah. the levels or whatever. I mean, you could still do that abstractly, turn the knob and have it appear on the screen and you should still be able to get the cue from it. True. Where I saw it sort of made sense to me that it would be actually on the screen is when you're using the pen with it. Right. So you're already over the screen. You're already in that posture. You're already damaging your back. You might as well have the dial nearby as well. <laughs> yeah. But there is this, these two metaphors, right? There's the keyboard mouse abstracted from the display way to work with it, with data. And there's the on-the-screen way with right. the pen and the dial. And the dial is actually given a choice to work either way. Yeah. Yeah. I like the demo where they had somebody drawing a line and then was increasing and decreasing the thickness of the line with the dial. Yeah. yeah. No, it's cool. And when it's when it's on screen, you get the benefit of being able to adorn the circle with tick marks yeah. or, or you whatever. know whatever information you want. So I've often been imagining right this idea of uh, a, a better input device for sculpting in 3D. In a mm. virtual world, mm -hmm. right? And and even in 2D, right? This idea of I want to kind of sh sand something down from this angle and then change the angle as I move around, Yeah. right? Well, with the dial and the mouse combined, you could create a tool that at least in two dimensions kind of shaves off from the edges of something as you move around right. to give it a more natural feel, right? Creating almost two-dimensional sculpting tools similar to what we've seen in three-dimensional clay sculpting. Yeah, and I would like any kind of technology that helps me build 3D models better. You know, I mean, the, the way we're doing it now is on a 2D surface is just really kind of hard. Yeah, I think you have to have, I, and I'm not absolutely familiar with the tools that are available, but my sense has always been it is harder than it should be. You know, there's, a, there's Hollow Studio on the HoloLens, which does allow you to put 3D things together. However, you get gorilla arm syndrome. So what yeah. I'd like to see is using something like the dial and the pen and all of that stuff, you know, where I can keep my hands lower and still do 3D work with the HoloLens in yeah. three dimensions. Yeah, I think HoloLens kind of, it's it's a really challenging environment to do, to build creative things quickly in, right? Because of the gorilla arm problem where your arms are out a, right. a lot because you're in order to click, you essentially have to be in the visual field, which means right. your hands have got to be up. But you can also use a mouse. With with Hololens, yeah, right? Sure. So you're like sitting at a desk. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I feel like it is. It it's got enough problems, right? Strain increases, right? We've got something mm -hmm. on top of our head mm -hmm. for long periods of time. That I I feel like it's not that being creative in Hololens world is not as valuable as communicating in Hololens world. Yeah, is, I agree. Right? I agree. That. We create somewhere else. We import it in, and we modify and edit maybe in this mm. world, and we annotate, we review. Or if we can have different user interface other than holding up our hands and clicking. Exactly. You know, right. Something else. Would work. Well, because there's two pieces here, right? I mean, obviously, for making 3D objects, having three-dimensional rendering of it because you're wearing two screens over your eyes is a good idea. Yeah. It's just the UI piece that's the problem. Yep. Hey, speaking of alternate UIs, this is something I want to do. I want to build like the uh, a camera that that you wear that aims behind you. 
And then I want to hook it up to tactile sensor or tactile uh, feedback pieces that are essentially attached right onto your skin on your back right in this area and then uh, what i wanted to do is essentially so give you some, so you can tell when your wife is sneaking up you behind you can tell you. when somebody's <laughs> sneaking up behind you it gives you a radar picture right of what's behind you and i was thinking oh this would be the coolest thing you know you could just learn echolocation and go around the whole day and you you, you know it's just a matter of training yourself you're right really. i'm going to abandon that other yeah, abandon that other te- technology approach that was stupid i don't <laughs> know what i was really thinking dumb, about actually but i'm doing this instead well <laughs> Talking about this, right, talking about getting this input in, you know, from alternate alternate channels or alternate sensory inputs, right? Yeah. This is actually kind of a really interesting thing mm. because our brain can, you know, it, it, it starts out essentially the same, but it's not, it doesn't know how to walk when it starts out, right? Sure. It's like, what, what's hooked up to my body? How do I move it? It takes a while to get to that point, right? Mm-hmm. Which means if you stuck our brain in another body, it would figure it out. Right. Yep. And you gave it another sense of inputs. Well, there's, you know, we've already got a set of inputs that we're not using a lot of, which are, you know, I'm talking about the sensory up up the back, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, where the skin is. Why not set that up to give you a crude three dimensional version? In other words, the closer something is, the the more the the you could use, for example, the frequency of vibration Mm. would tell you how close they are. Right. You know, it's it's interesting that you bring up the back, Mark, because. You know, one of the demonstrations of, of nerve endings and, a, you know, discriminating between male and female is that the, the, the upper part of the back has the fewest number of nerve endings on any body, but males have substantially fewer than females to the point where one of the demos you can do is to take a pin and touch it on your back and you won't be able to determine where exactly the pin is. Yeah. Wow. I, I think I've seen demos like this before, right, in terms yeah. of where they are. Yeah, that's interesting. So this area that's not really used, I kind of like this idea of having this thing that that you just kind of wear on your shoulders and it's looking back, it's lightweight, and it tells you what's behind you and gives you a, a stronger sense of your world. So we're going to talk about channels before the break. What is that? What are, what are channels all about in terms of your UI research? So channels are are essentially lines of input into the brain. For example, the group of visual channels, which include brightness, right? How bright is something? Okay. The hue of something. Yeah. Maybe the saturation of something, yeah. right? Um, those are big when we're talking about UI design. Also, with regards to tactile, you've got pressure. Mm-hmm. You've got even temperature. Mm. Uh, you've got deep pain could be a channel in UI, right? Mm. For example, you've, you've We've seen like the uh, Twilight Zone movies or the, you know, the, the movies where somebody's trying to teach someone and when they get the answer wrong, there's a lot of pain, electrocution, right? <laughs> yeah. For example, okay. right? right. That's, that's a form of feedback, right? And that's a form of UI. It's I a user interface. I just got a picture of you as like some torturing, you know, na- Nazi or something. <laughs> wow. You know? No. I just want to get that image out of my brain. Yeah, get that out. Because you're not that guy. I'm not that guy. No. But, but it's interesting to think about in terms of channels, right? In terms of input, right? Now, why is it that we don't use deep pain and temperature as a channel in UI? Well, one of the reasons is, is that it's incredibly slow. It goes through your body very slowly. So when you stub your toe, if you're a tall guy like me, you've got about two to three seconds after that hit where you feel the impact. Wait, that's the reason we don't use pain as a UI input? It's probably, yes, one of them. If it went fast, yes, absolutely. The fact that it's pain isn't enough to take it off the table? And also (laughs) discomforting heat and cold. Yes, the same thing, because they're slow to travel through your body. Otherwise, they'd be fine. Yeah, they go at about (laughs) 0.61 meters per second. I what I said about you and the Nazi thing. For what? Seriously? Come on. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my god. That's disqualifying. Yeah. Speaking well, wait of which, till you tell me what I tell you next. So speaking of which, when I meet Mel Brooks, right? Mel Brooks is like Karen introduces me as here's Miller, and Mel Brooks is like Miller. What kind of name is that? I'm like, <laughs> it's uh, German. It's German, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but I promise, I'm not a bad guy. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that's. I totally digress. Oh, I'm sorry. It wouldn't be a dot near rocks with you if we didn't go off the rails a little bit. But yeah. let's get back to channels. So if you wanted to use those, you'd be like, no, we can't. They're too slow. Proprioception is running at about 120 meters per second. It's incredibly fast in terms of running through your body. Proprioception? Proprioception, right. So this is your sense of where things are in space. Got it. Right, where your muscles are in space. So you can close your eyes, touch your fingers together, and you generally get pretty close because you know where everything is, right? Carl's doing it right now. There's the visual. He's got his eyes closed and he keeps doing it. <laughs> Um, you do it once and you can do it again, but that first time you're always a little off. Yeah. Tactile feedback is coming up. Uh, uh, I think it's something like about 80 meters per second is when it's coming in. Yeah. So it's pretty fast. Okay. So tactile is, is pretty fast. Audible. We've already talked about is it's the first to come in, mm -hmm. right? That's why we start races with a gunshot instead of a flash, mm. right? Because that we hear the gunshot and we can train our bodies to respond to that without waiting for anything else. Evolutionarily speaking, it's more beneficial to hear something rustling in the woods and to react to it quickly. That's going to save your life faster. I think, I think there are definitely evolutionary connections to, it, and it could also have to do with the development of the vision system evolutionarily yeah. over time, right? Yeah. And, and it, it may be that audio came first that our sense of hearing maybe came before light. That's a possibility, maybe. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, it's a simpler organ, so yes, yeah. it kind of makes sense. It's definitely simpler. In fact, in terms of space occupied in the brain, uh, the auditory cortex is much smaller than the visual cortex because mm -hmm. it has much less it has to do. That describes popular music. So, so channels. <laughs> channels are different ways of communicating, right? Yeah. So we've got visual, we've got auditory. Now, in auditory, you've got cha channels you can use in here are, sp are speed, of uh, in which we're talking mm -hmm. like if i wanted to emphasize something i might slow down unless you are mark miller right in which case i might just scream louder you might get right? more frenetic so i could use volume as a channel <laughs> yeah right moving up and down yeah and so so the so i have different ways of communicating with people yeah right and and visual the same thing we talked about brightness already so so and in any pr interesting presentation of information I have different, I have information groups that are of different levels of importance. Here's one for auditory, pausing. Yes, and white space. White space, yeah. First of all, pausing in space is so essential in music and also um, space in talking. And some of the masters of space, uh, to me, the podcast Radio Lab. I don't know if you listen to this podcast, but after they make a salient point, they literally have five or six seconds of nothing. Wow. Space. You know, after That's when bold. it comes to an end, they, yes. Yeah. And after you're thinking, what's going on here? No, I think it's but excellent. But they give you time to process what was yeah. just said. Yeah. No, I think that that's good and excellent. Yeah. So using white space as well is another way that we can emphasize. And we can emphasize right. that on multiple different channels, tactile, visual, audio, mm. right? On all those. Now, visual is generally consumed essentially in parallel instantaneously, whereas tactile, well, tactile can be as well kind of in parallel. And the sure. idea I was talking about that radar map to your back, Yeah. right? But uh, also it can be processed over time as well, serially. In fact, even our sense of time, right, could be a channel. Our sense of taste could be a channel as yeah. well. 
Yeah, sure. Right? So, but in any interesting dis- presentation of information, we have important information and we have less important information. Uh, a, a classic example is a table of data. The borders of the table is le- are th- those are less important than the numbers inside the table. Right. Sure. Right. And so, if we're using a channel to communicate that, like say for example, brightness, we want to drop the the uh, the contrast of the borders down because it's low importance and the background too, whatever it's against. Right. The background yeah. as well. And it's not to say that the borders have no importance because if they had no importance, you'd take them away. Yes. Yeah. But just having a grid of numbers. Without any sense of border at all, it's harder to read. But well, you can it achieve is, yes. you can achieve border with just color. So you know, yeah, uh, you background color. Background talking about. color, yeah. right? Yeah, so this isn't all color actually. Well, true, we true. we it's, so the course goes into this in detail. We talk about how to highlight and getting the right contrast level between background and text. Um, but but. But with channels, just to wrap up that in kind of a real quick summary of it, right? We've talked in the past about information relevance matching um, the uh, emphasis. Or maybe right. I'll swap those around. Your emphasis that you decide to put in your presentation should match the importance of the information. Right. right? So if the channel is contrast, the, the importance of the information should have the highest contrast. Exactly. Now, the question then comes into granularity. And I think we've talked about this in past shows. So look up past shows with Mark Miller to see, to, to, to find out more about this. But the essence behind granularity is that it's a constraint in that humans can differentiate uh, between different colors at most about four Without errors. Yeah. So if I give you across the entire brightness spectrum, four shades of gray. Yeah. Right. Which is the name of my new book. Well, just, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Which I am not going to read. <laughs> no, it's, it's very <laughs> sexy. You are my children. Very sexy usability. <laughs> um, so uh, so if you if you go across those four shades of gray, right, you and you use those to communicate different imp- levels of important information, people will be like, okay, I got it, and I and I'm understanding this. So so as an example, I might say my lines are going to be very close to the background color. That's going to be one of the shades. Yeah. The background color will be one of the shades of gray as well, right? A brightness, right? Perceived okay. brightness. So then my 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 lines will be that, and then I will have maybe my medium important text, like my column headers, will be uh, a little bit a little bit further contrast away from the background. Yeah, and then all the way on the other side of the spectrum will be my text. So that's the most important stuff, my data, right? That I'm going to put in there. Right, and so. One of the things that's interesting is uh, uh, back in 1956, Professor Miller uh, uh, did some cognitive scientist experiments, not me, another guy, not related to me that I'm aware of. And he basically sent tones out to people. And he said, this tone is the letter A, and this tone is the letter B, and this one is the letter C. And he found that if he took the entire audible spectrum and he started breaking it up and dividing it up, that people started introducing errors uh, at around uh, two and a half bits or at about seven of these tones across the entire t- entire bit. In I fact, see. So if if it wasn't granular enough, or if it was, it was too, too granular, granular, if it was too granular, you couldn't tell the useless. difference. It's useless. Yes. This is a very interesting problem that I experienced as well with somebody who wanted to teach music with color. And the yes. problem, he do you remember this? I we talked, talked about, about this. Yeah. Yes. The problem was he mapped uh, all the colors, the primary colors anyway, to the twelve tones, and then gradually got brighter as you got up the scale. And the problem was in the middle where you have middle C and an octave above and an octave below, you couldn't tell the difference between middle C red and an octave higher. And therein lies the problem with that whole 
Yes, this yeah. is exactly what I'm getting at. So, so one of the things that we talk about in the course is we go into the channel, the limits, the limits that you, you've got in front of you. And, yeah. and so, for example, with Hue, you've got about eight colors that people can differentiate and work with. Yeah. Right. That's reliably. Th- yes. That's yes. Reliably for late. Remember, remembering I'm living in a house full of artists. So yeah. there's like apparently a thousand colors that I cannot see <laughs> or name. That might be true. <laughs> yeah. Well, now the thing, just to be very clear about this, if I have a reference color or reference sensory part nearby, we can tell right. is sure. this darker or lighter yeah, dark, or warmer whatever. or colder. Right. Yeah. If that's somewhere in the context of the presentation. Yeah. Right. Think about how we recognize bold words, a word by itself. We won't know if it's bolder not but in the context of, of its surrounding paragraph it's pretty clear what which one's bold because we're comparing the font stroke when we right. see it right next to each other right so for so for brightness you've got four four cha- four p the channel capacity is four okay four different evenly distributed pieces inside of that um for uh for hue you've got eight um for saturation, uh, I found no experience for, experiments for it, but in doing my own and my own research, I'm telling you, you've got about three reliable saturation pieces. So, wow. so you don't have a lot to work with. And, but this is important when you want, let's say, for example, I want to create an editor that syntax highlights HTML code, right? I need to have colors for the different pieces that are in there. Or maybe instead of HTML code, maybe I want to create a syntax highlighter for parts of speech. We've got about nine different parts of speech and eight different colors. So what do you do? Right. And the answer, we talk about this, talk about this in the course, but it's like you, there are techniques for increasing channel bandwidth, the, the channel capacity. Right. 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 And one of them is to combine channels. And we talk about that. And one of the most interesting things is, is it's not, uh, uh, from a, from a channel bit capacity standpoint, it's not additive. In other words, if I've got hue at eight and brightness at four, and I'm going to use both together combined, I don't get four times eight distinct error-free pieces. What happens right. is my channel capacity does go up, right? It goes up, but it doesn't get to um, it, it. It doesn't get to thirty-two. Uh, it, instead, it gets uh, to some. It, it's it's far less than that. It does go up, but it does. It's not. You can't just multiply those numbers out and say, okay, here's how we're going to solve the problem. So does it get? I mean, does it get to twelve? Uh, yeah, I think it gets to about 12. It's, it's, it's in different examples. There's different specific, there are different specific things that you can do, but yes, you can go to 12. Now, what, one of the, one of the examples I do in the course is I, is I do, uh, is I do just this for parts of speech and I show how to solve it. And I say, well, here's the initial attack. And one of the problems with the initial attack of using those colors is that not every color has the same level of perceived brightness. Yeah. So blue, blue appears much darker than yellow. Mm-hmm. Right at full saturation, yep. and this has to do with limitations in our eyes. Yeah, uh, you, yeah, we, yeah, that's what it appears to be. It appears to be that colors that are perceived with two cones, like red and green, for example, uh, or uh, which would give us yellow. Right, that's very mm-hmm. bright, and both of those yep. cones would be fully activated. Right when when yellow light would be hitting that, mm. versus versus um, versus colors that are perceived with only one cone, such as blue. Right, oh, for example, okay. like that, right? And and my theory is is that's why the perceived brightness is different. It has to do with the number of cones that are activated and how high they're activated across that board. But if I had if I had text a part of speech like Nancy, so we say we're going to make that yellow on a white background. The the perceived uh, brightness of both of those is very similar. It's the yeah. contrast is low. It's almost white on white. It's like a light gray on white, right? And it's hard to read. Yeah. And so if we tried mm-hmm. that, and you've you've seen this probably in countless examples of science that try to put all the colors in it. Once they get to yellow yellow text on a on a white background, it the whole thing washes out. 
Yeah, and I'm holding up a, a credit card that I got from my bank, a new design where it's white numbers on a very light gray background, and oh, no. the, they took away the tactile part, so right. it's just flat. Right. So completely unreadable. Yeah, and not only that, they also have a background on it uh, that is uh, behind the text, which interferes with your feature detectors if that background is fine enough or, or interfering with the letters. Your feature detectors lead to your letter detectors, which go to your word detectors, which makes it harder to read. So in other words, they, they uh, took their design project and shopped it to the lowest bidder, basically. Yeah. Joe'sDesignStore.com. I hate Joe's Design Store. They're putting out more <laughs> crap these days. <laughs> Joe'sDiscountDesigns.com. I, I mean, I wonder if they're doing those low contrast things to impair people taking pictures of your credit card number. Yeah. But they've gone so far now that you can't even see the credit card. Yeah, number. I don't know. I'm yeah. like, uh, I don't know. So like, may, yeah, maybe like a security camera, if it was dark on white, could pick up the numbers. Yeah, well, I mean, people steal credit card numbers, so right. you got to when they're high contrast, so they're easy to read at a distance. They can be photographed, they can be quickly read, and so forth. Now you've got a low contrast scenario, so you know. You know I'm thinking, let us. The, I'm thinking the bank overdid the security. Leave it to Richard Campbell to find the reason why somebody did something stupid <laughs> <laughs> and awesome. justify it. Yeah. That's why I'm here. That's why you're here. Just to listen to Richard say, these people are so stupid. <laughs> I did not say that. I'm the guy saying, I think they had another set of attention. Yeah, I think I think you might be right there, Richard. That's I mean, if they're if they're smart, you know, but we yeah, can't I don't know. Assume. I've considered that and I think ultimately the cost to the consumer in terms of making it harder to read is is heavier than the than the likely than the the losses associated with theft. Then again, then how many times do you actually have to read your own credit card? Usually, then this one yes. has a chip. You usually just put it in a device and swipe it. Yeah. And and remember, this isn't about the consumer because the consumer is not ultimately on the hook when someone steals their card number and uses it. It's the vendors in the bank that are. Ah, and here's another so, reason. Here's another reason. If it's harder for you to read, the only time you really read it is when you're entering it into a website. Yeah. And they really want to discourage you from doing that. No, okay, fine. <laughs> fine, I yield. I yield to Carl and Richard. <laughs> See, just you think about this for a few minutes and all, all of a sudden all sorts of possibilities happen. You just got to turn on the cynical muscle. Once the cynical <laughs> muscle kicks in, you'll be fine. You should, guys, both of you should do your own counter class to my course. Oh, hell no. Why UI doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> just don't bother. That's that's chapter one. The science of indifferent UI. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So where can we find it? Okay. The course is at deviq.com slash S-G-U-I. That's the, those are the abbreviations for science, great, UI, user yeah. interfaces. So deviq.com slash SGUI. Okay. So before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to touch on? There are two things, Carl. One is I've got a set of questions that you should be asking when you're looking at your design. Okay. Right? Or any design to find out if it is following the guidelines or not. Okay. And question number one, does emphasis match information relevance? You want to ask that question, right? Yeah. Are the borders low contrast, for example? Is the text easy to read? Yeah. Right? Is the background a solid color, low saturation, and ideally white, for example? Mm. Um, and for read, so that's question number one. Does emphasis match information relevance? For readability, when you have text, is there sufficient contrast on the perceived brightness spectrum between text and background? Okay. So, for example, if you, if you have dark maroon 
on a medium blue background, yeah. that's going to kind of go on the perceived brightness spectrum to all gray. The whole yeah. thing's going to wash out. You won't be able to read the text. Yeah. And especially for small text, you need to have a high degree of contrast. But you're stifling my creativity, man. Yeah, I am. And also, so is <laughs> so are the WCAG 2.0 guidelines for readability on the web. So we're all essentially in sync that says, look, this you want to have text easily readable. And this is one of a com- the common mistakes that's made that's out there. Right. Um, or, uh, and alternatively, they make things that aren't important, like borders, high contrast or large, and, and they don't need to be. Yeah. Okay. Um, question number three, are the channel bandwidth limits followed? Right. So we talked about some of those limits that we have there. Are we trying to exceed those limits? Mm. And there have been a few cases where I've seen in, in major pieces of UI where they are exceeded and it's kind of okay. Yeah. But most cases, you want to be very careful about that, about doing that, because you're just, people are just going to be lost and not know. As in the example you gave, uh, uh, Carl, of the, uh, of the music training program. Right, right. Um, cha- question number four, is color used consistently and meaningfully? Yes, this has been something we've been talking about with you for a long time. Yeah. Red means bad on one screen and it means okay on another screen. Yeah. That's not good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you, you can even see this in iOS 7 where they have the red, they all, the, the, uh, the calendar application uses red text, but then the menu, are you sure you want to trash these things? That menu item is in red text as well. Yeah. So it's kind of inconsistent there. Yeah. Um, does physical proximity match contextual proximity? So say, for example, you were going to create a, uh, a page that had my picture and my name and you had those far apart from each other. Yeah. The contextual proximity of those, both of those is, 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 it's close, right? My name and my, and my picture is very, very close to each other. And maybe it's for a course, for example. But space-wise, they're apart. Yeah. And maybe the course is beginner. And so it's got the word beginner underneath my name. So it says Mark Miller beginner. Yeah. Underneath it. And the picture's over there. What we want to do is we want to take, the beginner has nothing to do with me. I'm not a beginner. Right. I swear I'm not. I, yeah. I'm not a beginner. Know. Right. But you want to put the name next to the picture. Right. Right. So does uh, physical proximity match contextual proximity? That's question number five. Got it. And so those are the five things. And I also wanted to point out that I've got some uh, kind of cool sample applications out on GitHub. Okay. So if you go to GitHub slash Miller Mark, M-I-L-L-E-R-M-A-R-K, Slash, and I've got three things out there that may be of interest to you. Number one is the step diagrammer, which is a very cool tool that runs in Windows that allows you to measure the uh, the cost associated with a particular sequence of steps in a UI running on Windows. Wow. Um, I've got the Feedback Loop Explorer, which lets you play with different feedback loops and get a sense of what that feels like, right? What happens when the mouse feedback, mouse all of a sudden you slow down the mouse compared to, to what, uh, what the movements are and how hard it is now to use it. And I've got the Highlight Explorer, which um, uh, goes after this whole question on the, of the perceived brightness scale and how to introduce highlighting in a way, because highlighting, right, it chops that channel in half. Yeah. Right. It chops it up at some point. Right. If I've got a background highlight color, it's got to be distinct from the background itself. Yeah. And the text on top got all kinds of problems. So I've got this really cool tool called the Highlight Explorer that that takes you through that. Very cool. I got a question for you. It's a yes or no question. Does discoverability matter? Yes. Okay. Then why don't you have readmes on these projects? (laughs) I will tell you the next time you have me on the show. All right. (laughs) I will keep you in suspense. All right, Mark, it's been great. This is amazing. I can't wait to see the whole thing start to finish. Thank you. Yes. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a